0: By my reckoning, which is seldom accurate, we've got four weeks, including today, left in the ninth chapter of John's Gospel before we begin chapter 10, John chapter 9, and we're going to read together verses 18 through verse 34, John 9, the Jews then did not believe it of him that he had been blind and had received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight and questioned them saying, is this your son who you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, or who opened his eyes we do not know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. For this reason his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. So a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He then answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. So they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? They reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, Well, here's an amazing thing that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners. If anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born entirely in sins, and are you teaching us? So they put him out. Bow our heads. Our Father, we pray that you would fix our hearts and our minds upon your word, that you would grant us the understanding this morning in your word that is necessary for us to obey you and to glorify you through that understanding. Send your spirit to be our guide and our teacher, our counselor this morning, that you would encourage our hearts together and equip us and edify us in your truth by which we are sanctified. We pray that this would be to that end and for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. Well, there are two ways that you and I can receive instruction and learn things. We can learn by positive example, and we can learn by negative example. You understand what the difference between those two things are? When you learn from positive example, you watch somebody who makes a wise decision or takes a wise or right course, and you see the fruit of that, and you see what God does through that, and then you learn something. So you see a wise person do a wise thing, you see what how God blesses that, and then you follow in those steps. That's learning from positive example. Learning from a negative example is the opposite. It's possible to actually learn wisdom from a fool. Did you know that? You know how you learn wisdom from a fool? You watch what the fool does. You see the foolish outcome of his foolery, foolishness. And then you don't do that. And so you learn wisdom from a fool. A wise man learns from the mistakes of others. A fool repeats the mistakes of others. That's how you can learn both positively and negatively. Interestingly, Scripture is filled with examples of positive instruction and negative instruction. We have the Proverbs, for instance, in which the wisdom of God is described and in which the path of wisdom is laid out for us. And we are promised the fruit of that and we see what that would yield and what that would bring. And then we have also, in the same book of Proverbs, the way of a fool laid out for us. And we see the consequences of that and what God promises to do to those who follow after foolishness. So we have both positive and negative instruction in Scripture. There are men from whom we learn positive examples. There are men in Scripture from whom we learn negative examples, things to avoid, men like Solomon and Saul. And then, interestingly, there are people in Scripture who are examples of both, the things to be followed after, the examples to be followed, and the pitfalls to be avoided, men like David. David was not all bad. He had some horrible things that he did in his life. We see the example of his foolishness, but we also see a lot of things that David did as a man after God's own heart that pleased the Lord in his walk with the Lord. And we see men like Peter who... Of course, positive and negative, men like Abraham and Jonah and Noah, positive and negative. So we have these two paths laid out for us in Scripture. We can follow after positive examples. We follow after negative examples. Last week, we learned from a negative example. This was the blind man's parents. Remember that? We learned something about them, and we learned what not to do when facing hostility for Christ, and that is, we don't deny Christ. And so they served as a negative example to us. Here here we're were two people who had received a gift of almost immeasurable grace, not only to their son, but also to themselves, to have their son healed of his blindness, his congenital blindness, so that now he could work and he could enjoy life and they didn't have to care for him, he could be delivered from his poverty, he didn't have to beg anymore. What a gift of grace. And yet in in spite of having received such an immeasurable gift of grace, when it came time for them just to basically barely confess what it was that had brought about this man's healing. What did they do? They shrunk back in unbelief and cowardice, away from the opportunity to speak something good of the person who had graced them and their family so much. You know, to to merely confess that Jesus had done this to their son, which they knew it was Jesus, and they knew how it had happened. We saw that last week. To merely confess that was not to confess that Jesus was the Christ. Verse 22, they were afraid because the Jews had already concluded that anybody who said that Jesus was the Christ, they were going to be put out of the synagogue. Listen, they could have told the truth without even coming close to saying anything positive about Jesus. They could have simply said, it was Jesus who healed our son. Now what that says about him, we don't know. But we can tell you this, according to our son, this is what has happened. But they didn't do that. Instead, they just said, we don't know. We don't know how it happened. We don't know who did it. Don't ask us. Talk to our son. That was the negative example. Here's what you learn from the parents of the blind man. Never throw your child under the bus for the sake of your own reputation or your own comforts and conveniences. Now today we get to learn from a positive example. And the positive example is this man himself. Now he gets another example to testify. And this is where, I have to confess to you, this is where I really fall in love with this blind man. This is where we find out he is entirely unlike his parents. His parents are one thing. This man is something else. And it's really stunning to see it. Now the exchange that's about to take place actually happens between verses 24 and verse 34, which is the end of where we stopped reading there at the beginning. 24 and 34. We're going to get about halfway through this today, and we're going to pick it up with the rest of the remainder of it next week. Beginning at verse 24. So a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God, we know that this man is a sinner. A second time they called the man who had been born blind. So this is round two. Round two. Now round one was verses 13 through 17 where they said, What happened to you? Who did it? And they kept grilling him and asking him over and over again, Tell us how you received your sight and who did it and how he did it and when he did it. Give us all of the details. Over and over and over they asked him this. And he kept saying, He applied clay to my eyes. I washed. I see. He applied clay to my eyes. I washed. I see. He just gave him the facts. But they didn't go anywhere with that. They didn't get anything from him. They didn't get him to cower on unbelief. They didn't get him to turn states' evidence. They didn't get him to confess to any kind of grand conspiracy. So then they concocted this unimaginable theory that the man was never really blind to begin with and maybe that the whole thing was a fabrication foisted on everybody by his parents and this man. So in verse 18, they did not believe it of him that he had been born blind and received his sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight. So then they called the parents in and what did they get from the parents? Nothing. They get no information. So now where do they go? Now listen, they're kind of... They're kind of a bit in a pickle because they have this theological dilemma that they're trying to resolve. How is it that this man, being a sinner, violating our Sabbath law, can go ahead and do these miracles on the Sabbath? They can't figure this out. They are trying to find some way to discredit the man, his parents, Jesus, or the miracle. And so far they've gotten nothing from the man during their first encounter with him. They have gotten nothing from the testimony of the parents that could possibly serve to discredit Jesus or the miracle. So now what do you do? Got to do something, right? Let's call him in again. So they call the man in, the blind man in, a second time. I love how John continues to refer to the blind man. Do you notice it in verse 24? A second time they called the man who had been blind. All the way through this chapter, John refers to him with this title of his former his former condition. It's in verse 17. They brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. It's in verse seven. Sorry, that's 13. Verse 17. So they said to the blind man again, Verse 18, the Jews did not believe it of him that he had been blind until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight. And then in verse 24, a second time they called the man who had been blind. It's interesting how John refers to him. Why do you you think John does this? I think it's for two reasons. First of all, to remind us of the marvelous nature of what has happened to this man. The second reason, to remind us again of the truth that was staring everybody in the face. As this whole circus unfolds, John reminds us in the most subtle way. He was blind, and now he sees. Now watch how they handle this. Remember, he was blind, and now he sees. Now watch what they do. He was blind, and now he sees. Over and over again, John is reminding us. Not only of the marvelous nature of the miracle, but of the reality that was staring everybody in the face. He was blind, and now he sees. And the Pharisees look right past all of that. And they're off believing the most absurd of things in order to discredit Jesus and the miracles. So look what they do in verse 24. They said to him, and here's how the second interrogation starts. Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Now what do they mean by that? Give glory to God. Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. What are they driving at with that statement? I think it's one of two things. First, it might be that they are using uh, what what they're trying to do is trying to press him to confess his own sin or his lying. So this is a phrase like that used in Joshua chapter 7 in the story of Achan. You remember the story of Achan? There was certain spoil that God prohibited anybody, the children of Israel from taking, and Achan took it. He saw it. He coveted it. He took it. He hid it beneath the floor of his tent. And then what happened? They went out and they suffered defeat at the city of Ai. And Joshua wondered why this was happening. The Lord revealed to him, there's a traitor in your midst, somebody who has done something. He took the spoil that didn't belong to him, something that was under the ban. And so you have suffered this defeat. And then Joshua uh, cast the lots and it came all the way down through four generations and zeroed in on Achan. And then here's what Joshua said to Achan. My son, I implore you, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give praise to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. So they might be using this phrase, give glory to God, in the same way that Joshua used it back with the story of Achan, in which case they'd be saying this, look, come clean. Give glory to God by fessing up to what has really happened. Stop with the shenanigans. Stop with the charade. Don't lie to us anymore. Come clean. Tell us the truth. Was it really Jesus? Were you really blind? Did He really heal you? Was it really clay? Can you really now see? Stop trying to deceive us. Stop trying to lie to us. Just come clean and admit it. And and thus doing, give glory to God. That might be what they're doing. Pressing Him to just come clean. Second, A second possibility, and this is more likely what I think that they mean. They are saying to the man, you need to give glory to God for your healing and not this man who is a sinner. That's why I think they do the phrase, we know that this man is a sinner. You need to give glory to God, not to Jesus. In which case, they are pressing him to give glory and honor to God for his healing instead of this sinner. This man violated our Sabbath traditions. He doesn't respect our Sabbath traditions. He has violated our Sabbath law. We know that he is a sinner. Now, If you come in here and we ask you again how it is that you received your sight and you insist on giving this man credit and glory for what only God can do in your body, you are giving honor to a sinner, a Sabbath breaker, instead of giving honor to the God of Israel to whom it is due. Now only God can heal you. So we're going to give you one more shot at this. Give honor to God. And the implication is deny this man. They're pressing him to turn state's evidence give a confession of honor to God instead of this man who is a sinner. Now I want you to notice here what unbelief is doing. These people are unbelievers and what unbelief is doing is seeking to rob Christ of the glory that he is due. That's what they want him to that's what they're asking him to do. Unbelief always seeks to do this. Unbelief always seeks to rob God of the glory that he is due. They deny that God is a creator and that we are here by God's creation. They didn't Unbelievers deny that we are in the image of God and instead they believe this ridiculous thing called evolution, which is nothing but absurdity and stupidity. They are willing to believe that in order to rob God of the glory that He is due as the Creator. Or they deny God the glory that He is due in their salvation and they work for it in unbelief. They work for their salvation rather than trusting in the Savior and entrusting in Him to give honor to the Savior to whom it is due. Unbelief always seeks to rob Christ of His glory. Second, I want you to notice that these men use pious and righteous sounding language to advance the most wicked of causes. Unbelievers typically do this as well. They use pious and righteous sounding language to advance a very unrighteous cause. Give honor to God. That sounds very spiritual, doesn't it? Now I ask you this, were these men in the least bit interested in honoring God? In the least bit. These are the most self-glorifying, self-exalting, self-worshipping, works-based religious fanatics that you can possibly imagine these are the men who would ring bells when they gave who would anoint their face to announce to everybody that they are fasting these men seek no glory and honor for god whatsoever and yet they use this pious and righteous sounding language we want you to 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 give glory and honor to god they are pretending a zeal for god's glory in order to press this man into dishonoring the son i also want you to note oh, by the way That is something that unbelievers have done all the way through church history. Whether it's the Counter-Reformation, the persecution of the Protestants, the Inquisition, or Protestant persecution of Catholics after the Reformation, whatever it is, some of the most unrighteous and wicked people will use pious-sounding language to advance their own agenda, their own power, and their own glory. It happens all the time. Even false teachers today use pious-sounding language as messengers of Satan and angels of light To promote the most unrighteous and unwicked, uh, wicked and self-exalting doctrines you can possibly imagine. That's what unbelief does. Third, I want you to notice the irony of this. What are they really asking him to do? They're asking him to give honor to the Father by denying the Son. Now I ask you this, is that even possible? To give honor to the Father by denying the Son. Jesus said back in John chapter 5, verse 23, for 22, For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. So that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. It is impossible to give honor to God by denying Jesus Christ or to not honor the Son for what He has done. That's the irony here. Glorify God by denying the Son. He can't do that. He can't do that. That's impossible. You cannot deny God's Son and give honor to the Father at the same time. But that's what unbelief always seeks to do, to rob Christ of His glory to use pious and wicked like, uh, pious and righteous-sounding language to advance the most wicked of causes, and then to, seeks to give honor to the Father by denying or robbing honor from the Son. Look at their accusation. Verse 24, they said to Him, We know that this man is a sinner. Now, that's their declaration. That's all it is, by the way, is a declaration. By the way, did they know that this man was a sinner? Do they know that? What had He done that made them think that He was a sinner? He had violated their Sabbath traditions, their Sabbath laws. Had he actually violated the law of God? He kept the law perfectly from the moment of his birth all the way up until the moment of his death. He had perfectly kept the law of God. But they declared him to be a sinner because he had violated their Sabbath traditions. That's their accusation against him. They deny him the glory by calling him a sinner. Now his answer is marvelous. Verse 24, he then answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Actually, the, the wording is being blind now I see. Being in a state of blindness, now I see. Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. Now could this man have known the sinlessness of Christ? Was Christ a sinner? Could this man have known that? So far, what has been his interaction with Jesus? He's standing there and a man walks up, spits in the clay, makes clay, wipes it in his eyes, says, go to the pool of Siloam to wash. As far as we know, that is the only time that he has spent with the Savior. So he really is not in a position to judge the impeccability or the sinlessness of Jesus at this point. His interaction with Jesus has been very short and very brief to the point. He really doesn't know that. And the man is not denying that Jesus is a sinner. He's simply denying whether or not he can judge that. Now you and I might look at the man's response and say, look, he could have stood up for Jesus and said no sinner sinner could do what he did. He does this later. Later on he gets into this debate as to whether Jesus is a sinner or not. But at this point he's just simply saying whether he's a sinner I do not know. And he's not denying or suggesting that Jesus is a sinner. All he is saying is this. Keep in mind what it is that he is denying. They have suggested that Jesus is a sinner because He violated their Sabbath law, their traditions. And the man is simply saying this. Whether Jesus, in doing what He has done, violated your Sabbath traditions, or the actual Sabbath law, that debate I cannot get into. And I'm not willing to get into it. I'm not interested in engaging you, you legalistic Pharisees, On grounds that you guys are experts in. You say he broke these little minutiae of our Sabbath law. Maybe he did. I don't know. But there is one thing I am an expert on blindness. I know blindness. Because being blind, I now see. There's one thing that this man does know for absolute certain. There's Sabbath law. Not really. There's one thing he knows for sure. He was blind. And now he sees. And that he cannot and he will not deny because he knows what the truth is. So he just, there's some wisdom in this. He doesn't engage in their theological wranglings over the minutiae of their Sabbath traditions. He's not interested in doing that. What he is interested in doing is keeping this discussion right where it belongs. And that is on the central truth, the thing to which he can testify. I do know this and I can testify to this. I was blind and now I see. That is so simple, isn't it? By the way, that is the quintessential Christian testimony. Every Christian can describe their conversion in those terms. In fact, if you are looking for a simple, concise way to describe your conversion to Jesus Christ, you could do, you, you could not do better, I don't think, than what this man has stated here. Being blind, I now see. That describes there was a past condition, there is a present condition, and there is a marked change in something that happened at some point. I was this, and now I am this. That much I know. How this happened? I mean, look at the testimony. It's not, It's not beautiful in its articulation, is it? Being blind, I see. It's not theologically complicated and complex. It's not long. It's not drawn out. It's not winding with rabbit trails about all of his history and all of his past and all that. Look, this is what I was. And this is what I am. And something has happened that has made a radical change. In fact, these words that are used here are are used by John Newton in that familiar Christian hymn, Amazing Grace. Did you notice that? Amazing grace how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me I once was lost I want I want I once was once was lost I, now I'm found was blind but now I see the familiar Christian hymn that we're all familiar with that's the one <laughs> amazing grace I once was blind but now I see that's the reality of Christian conversion everything about my salvation can be summed up in that phrase I once was blind and now I see that's the truth of it whether you believe it or not Whether you like that or not, whether you can deal with that or not, that's the truth of it. And every Christian can confess this. I remember the moment that I saw, that I regained my spiritual sight. I remember the moment of it. I can't mark the time. I can't mark the exact date. I know it was going on now 26 years ago, but I remember where I was sitting. I remember who I was sitting with. I remember exactly what happened when God regenerated me. I was sitting there listening to the proclamation of the gospel, and suddenly I said, that's what I believe. I believe that. I am a sinner. I am under the judgment of God. I believe in Jesus Christ for salvation. At that moment, I was born again. And then came the altar call. And I tell people, I wasn't saved at the altar call. I got up when they said you need to come forward. I got up. I would have done anything. I would have done anything. I would have climbed to the top of Mount Everest if I was told to do that. I got up and I went forward, but I know when God saved me, it was sitting in that seat before I ever went forward at the altar call. And then I went outside and I sat down with my camp counselor and he said, pray after me. And I prayed, quote unquote, the sinner's prayer. Sinner's prayer didn't save me. The altar call didn't save me. Getting up and going forward didn't save me. None of those things saved me. You know what saved me? The regenerating work of the Spirit of God when suddenly I saw it and I saw everything and I saw it all clearly. And I said, this makes sense. Now I know this. I was blind. Now I see. I was dead. Now I have life. I once, and every Christian can say this, I once, there was a time when I did not have any taste or desire or hunger for the Word of God, and now I do. I once didn't like fellowship. I once didn't like worship. I once didn't like singing. I once didn't like preaching. I once didn't like reading my Bible. I once didn't like other Christians. Now I do. Something has changed. I once had no hope. Now I have hope. I once was in darkness. Now I am in light. I once was a child of Satan. Now I'm a child of God. I once walked this way. Now I walk this way. I once was a slave to my sin and my passions and my lusts and my desires, and my desires. And now God has done something to set me free. That's regeneration. Now, whether you remember an instant when that happened, or maybe a season, you can't necessarily pinpoint that. You do know this, that something has changed. Maybe it happened an instant. Maybe you remember where it happened. But if you are a Christian today, you have gone from being blind to seeing. And this is the quintessential Christian testimony. Being blind, now I see. So simple. And yet, in its simplicity, it is so richly profound, is it not? That 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 transformation has taken place. Do you know what causes that transformation? It is the work of the Spirit of God. It's nothing that you did. It's not a decision you made. It's not a prayer you prayed. It's not an aisle you walked. It's not a card you checked. It's the regenerating work of the Spirit of God where He gave you sight, and you believed, and you saw it, and it was all clear, and He regenerated your wicked and ugly heart, just like He regenerated my wicked and ugly heart. And listen, if you're sitting here today and you can say, you know what, there has never been a time when I went from darkness to light, then you are not a believer. I don't care how long you've been attending church. I don't care how much you pray or praise or sing. If you have never gone from darkness to light, from blindness to spiritual sight, from hating the things of God to loving the things of God, from loving the things of the world to hating the things of the world, if that transformation has never taken place and you are not a changed individual, you are not saved and the only thing you can do is come to God, rush to Him for forgiveness of sins and new life and beg Him to have mercy on you. Repent of your sin and believe in the Son. It's the only thing you can do. Alright, so that is the quintessential Christian testimony. Verse 26. So they said to him again, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Now does this sound familiar? This guy has to be just exasperated, right? The neighbors asked him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Uh, He applied clay to my eyes. He told me to go wash. I went. I washed. I see. They bring him to the Pharisees. What did he do to you? How do you see? He applied clay to my eyes. Told me to wash. I went. I washed. And I see. Now they bring him in a third time. What did he do to you? How is it that you see? Eventually you've got to say, you know what, I am fed up with this. And why are they badgering him? I think they're really trying to badger him because they're hoping, I think, they're hoping that he's going to turn state's evidence. Maybe he's going to be like his parents. His parents were just in here. Maybe he'll turn out just like his parents and, and cower back in the fear. If we grill him again, if we turn up the light, if we put on the heat, if we start asking the same questions, maybe we can wear him down and he'll say... Eventually say, I don't know, maybe it wasn't Jesus who applied clay. Maybe I, maybe I fell down outside the temple. I got dirt in my eyes and I went and I washed and I see. Maybe something else happened. They're hoping in some way that he's going to change his story. What are they after? I don't know what they're after, but listen. The one thing that they are not prepared for is the conversation that they are now about to get into. If they thought he was going to be like his parents, they are overreaching here. And you cannot even overstate how much they are overreaching They're going for the gold, and they are not prepared for what this man is about to do. And it's brilliant. His answer is brilliant. Look at verse 27. He answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Now that's a rebuke. That's a reproof. That is a gentle reproof, but it is firm. I told you already. You asked me these questions. I told you the truth. Now you're asking me these questions again, and I'm telling you the truth. But you do not hear. You're unwilling to hear. You're unwilling to see. The truth is in front of you. I have confessed the truth. I have told you the truth. And you're not listening to the truth. Now here's the irony. These are the men who consider themselves guardians of the truth, protectors of the truth, the teachers of the truth. And they are denying the truth when he states it. I have already told you the truth. And you will not listen to the truth. That is a rebuke to teachers. This man is completely unlike his parents. Look at the next sentence. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? Zing! That's exactly what that is. Listen, that is not a sober, serious question. Oh, are you guys considering becoming disciples of Jesus? He's not really inquiring this. This is a sarcastic question, not a sober one. And it really gets to the heart of the issue. He is not only reproving them, but listen, he has now he is just... How would you describe it in a nice Christian way? He is driving the stake into the heart of the matter on how you would do it, but he is really going after the jugular in this response. He is completely now taking it on the offensive. I've told you, and you don't want to hear it. So now why? Why would you want to hear it again? You want to hear it again. Are you looking into the truth because maybe you're considering becoming followers of this Jesus too? Now ultimately, their inquiring into the truth should have led them to that conclusion, right? They should have looked at what he did, listened to his claims, looked at the Old Testament and said, you know what, this matches. All of this man's credentials line up. Everything the Old Testament says about the Messiah lines up. This man does signs from God. He has made a blind man see. That was the proof and evidence of a Messiah. They should have looked at all of that and said, we ought to become followers of Jesus too. Really what the man is doing in his own sarcastic way is he is pushing them toward the conclusion and forcing the conclusion on them that they should have came to on their own, but they didn't. Do you want to become his disciples too? There's one there's one uh, little word in that verse, by the way, which is loaded. It is a game changer. Do you recognize what the little word is? It's two. I don't know who said it, but that's right. Or also, depending on your translation. You don't want to become his disciples also or two, do you? What does that little word tell us? It tells us that by this point, this man considered himself a follower of Jesus. And that is certainly how they understood it because they say to him, No, no, you are his disciple. They understood exactly what he was claiming. He was putting himself in the camp of being a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus. Keep in mind, his interaction with Jesus amounts to having clay rubbed in his eyes and being told to go wash it off. That's it. And yet he is willing at this point to put himself in the camp of being a follower of Jesus. And he is saying to them, do you want to become his disciples too? He considers himself a follower. Look at their response. They reviled him. They reviled him, verse 28, and said, You are his disciple. We are disciples of Moses. Now here's what they're doing. They, they, they cannot think of anything more disparaging to this blind man than to associate him with Jesus. You're his disciple. We, we are not. We follow Moses. Now Moses, in their eyes, was as high up as, high up the, the rabbi food chain as you could get. They could not appeal to a higher rabbi on the rabbi totem pole than Moses. So they go all the way up to the top. There's nothing that would they think would disparage this man more than calling him a follower of Jesus. And there is nothing, by the way, that they could think of, of disparaging Jesus more than to consider a poor, blind beggar his follower and to associate this beggar with Jesus. Here was a man who lived his whole life from their vent from their theological perspective, a man who lived his whole life under the curse of God in blindness, either for his sin or the sin of his parents. That's the type of person that follows Jesus. And you know what? You are a beggar and a poor blind man and nothing compared to us. So Jesus is the type of person that you should follow. This is a mutual disdain for both the blind man and Jesus. And 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 there's nothing that could be more disparaging to both of them than to, than to link them both in the same camp, right? Sometimes you say, "I'm glad those two people married because it would be horrible if they screwed up two couples." So, I mean, I don't say that all the time, but sometimes you think that's the case. Mostly my family members. Nobody here, by the way, but that's the type of disparaging thing that they're doing with these two. There's nothing more. There's nothing better than for you to follow this man, because this you're the type of person that follows this despicable teacher. And, and there's nothing better or more disparaging to say Jesus than this is the type of man, a beggar under the curse of God, that follows him. So you're perfectly matched for each other. But us, we follow Moses. Moses. There's an assumption behind their question. There's actually two assumptions behind their question. And I want to unpack both of these assumptions for you. Assumption number one is that Jesus is lesser than Moses. Do you notice that? They're assuming that that's the case. Jesus is lesser than Moses. We follow Moses. You go after that man. He's lesser than Moses. But is that true? It's not true, is it? What they intended to be an insult, by the way, actually became one of the greatest compliments that they could pay that man, the blind man. You follow Jesus. We follow Moses. We have Moses. You have Jesus. Down at the bottom of the barrel, top of the totem pole. We have this man. You have this man. That's how they viewed it. But in reality, as we saw in Hebrews chapter 3, Moses was not equal with Jesus Jesus is not lesser than Moses. Jesus is greater than Moses. Moses is far less than Jesus even. Moses was a servant in the house. Jesus is the son of the house. Jesus was faithful in all things. Moses, not so much. He did what God called him to do. He was a faithful servant. But these two men cannot even be compared. They're not peers. They're not equals. They're not even close to one another. Jesus is the I am that Moses worshipped. That's how much greater Jesus is than Moses. And the world does this to you and I all the time, by the way. They say things like, oh, you're a follower of Jesus. You're a Christian. Oh, I get it. I get it. That explains you. Right. No, we follow Darwin. Right. You're a, you, you follow the moral code of the Bible? Whatever. We make ours up as we go along. Now, I'm a postmodernist. You're a Christian. I'm a postmodernist. In their view, what are they doing? They're insulting you by calling you a follower of Jesus. And they're claiming that Darwin or postmodernism or their own moral code or relativism or whatever they are secularism, humanism, atheism is so much better than Jesus. You're the type of people that follow after guys like Jesus. And, and, and Jesus is the type of guy that gets followers like you. But as for us, we follow after Darwin, or we follow after science, or we follow after atheism, or I'm a rational free thinker. Yeah, nobody is less free thinking than people who call themselves free thinkers. That's the reality of it. What they have considered a, an insult to us is actually the highest compliment that they can pay us. So next time somebody says, oh yeah, you're one of those Christians, not me, I'm an atheist, or I'm a this, or I'm a that, you just say to them, did you consider that an insult? Because that was the highest compliment you could possibly pay, me, to call me a follower of Jesus. And that's what I am. That is the highest compliment that could be paid. The second assumption, not only the first is that they considered Jesus inferior to Moses, the second assumption is this, that Jesus and Moses are incompatible. Right? You belong in that camp, we belong in this camp. We belong to Moses, you have Jesus. Is it true that Jesus and Moses are incompatible and that you have to choose between the two? That's not true. Back in John chapter 5, Jesus said to the Pharisees, Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Right? Jesus is not opposite Moses. Jesus is the fulfillment of Moses. Everything Moses wrote points to him. So to follow after Jesus is to fulfill Moses. It is to follow along with Moses. These men claimed they were followers of Moses, and while they were sitting at Moses' feet, they twisted and distorted and perverted the word of Moses to the point where it was unrecognizable to anything Moses wrote. With all of their traditions, they added to it. They claimed to be followers of Moses, but in reality, if Moses were standing there in the middle of this discussion, what do you think Moses would have said? Moses would have said, I am a follower of Jesus. He's the I am I worship. Everything I wrote is about Him. That's what Moses would have said. They think that you have to choose between Moses and Jesus, and that's not true. To choose Jesus Christ is to choose the fulfillment of everything Moses wrote. It is to follow Moses. And to follow after Moses is to be led to Jesus. Look at their reasoning, verse 29. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. We know that God has spoken through Moses. We know this. But as for this man, we do not know where he is from. Now by by the phrase, we do not know what he is from, they don't mean we don't know if he's from Galilee or Nazareth or Bethlehem or Judea or where he's from. They're not talking about geographical location. They're talking about the issue of authority here. As for Moses, we know that Moses speaks from God. But as for this man, we do not know where he is from, where his authority originates. Moses was a messenger of God. Now here's the beauty of verse 29. And we can't get into this till next week and our time is already up. Here's the beauty of verse 29. What these Pharisees are doing in verse 29. And this is just, This is so wonderful. They are digging themselves a pit and then they are standing on the edge of the pit looking into it, waiting for this blind man to push them into the pit of their own reasoning. They set a trap for themselves in verse 29 that they cannot escape. And they don't even see it coming. And in verse 30, the blind man sees it and he exploits it instantly. Now, I'm going to just ask you a couple of questions and you will see the trap that they have set for themselves. As for Moses, we know that Moses came from God or he spoke from God. He was authoritative, commissioned by God. As for this man, we do not know where he came from. Now, here's the question. How do they know that Moses spoke from God? How would they know that? How do they know that Moses is not a false teacher? How do they know that Moses was not a false prophet? How do they know this for certain? How can they know that Moses' authority comes from God? What would they point to? The signs that Moses did. That was the point of miracles. The point of miracles was to authenticate the messenger. How do I know that a man speaks from God? He performed signs and wonders. So the signs in Egypt and the water from the rock and the man in the wilderness and the ground opening up and the budding of the, the, the Aaron staff and all of that, all of those signs that happened in and around Moses and his ministry confirmed Moses as God's spokesman and that the authority of Moses came from God. That's how they would know it. And if the blind man had asked them this question, how do you know Moses spoke from God? They would have said, well, because he did these signs of God, God attested to him through the miracles. That's how we know that Moses spoke from God. Now, do you see the trap? What are we discussing in John 9? A miracle. Right? If they are going to embrace Moses by that criteria, what must they also do? They must also embrace Jesus by the same criteria. They don't even see this coming. This is like the person who says to you, it is wrong for you to say that other people are wrong. They dig themselves a pit and they stand on the edge of it waiting for you to push them in with this question. If it's wrong to say that people are wrong, why are you saying I'm wrong? Or the person who says there is no truth. They've dug a pit and they're standing on the edge of it waiting for you to push them into the pit with this question. Is that true? Do you see it? We accept Moses because God did signs through Moses. And the blind man sees this immediately. Verse 33. Here's an amazing thing. You don't know where he's from, and he opened my eyes. Moses never did this. Right? What does the blind man point to as an authentication that Jesus comes from God? The sign that he did. If you are going to embrace Moses by these criteria, then you must embrace Jesus by these criteria. And listen, they have no response to this. At the end of the passage, they just boot him out. All they do is disparage his character and kick him out because he has caught them and just humiliated them in their unbelief. They, they These poor fools did not see this man coming, did they? They probably expected a response similar to the parents, and that's not what they got. This man is unlike his parents. A bold witness and testimony for Christ who is willing to say, a lot of things I don't know, this I know. I was blind, and now I see. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are so grateful for the the blessing of spiritual sight that you have given to us. It is all your working, and we are reminded again of the responsibility that we have to be bold witnesses and and, uh, testimonies for Christ we thank you for a Savior who has so beautifully fulfilled all of the Old Testament law and the prophets and has given us his righteousness by faith. We thank you for what you've done in our hearts and may all that we do in, testi- in testifying of your Son be for your glory and honor and can make us to consider, we pray, that being identified with Jesus is anything but an insult. It is the most glorious compliment that we could ever be paid. And let us bear the shame and the reproach that others cast upon us gladly and even be cast outside the gate if necessary for your Son and for His glory. We ask it in His name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.